All right, everyone get an outline tonight? If you did not, uh, we have some uh, in the back, uh, some men in the back there who could help you out. Anybody need an outline for this evening's message? We have a couple here. If you could help them. Romans chapter 16. Take your Bible, Romans 16. We've made it all the way to the end of this epistle, Paul's epistle to the Roman church, Romans 16. Before we dive into this particular passage, I'd like for you to flip your handout over on the back, and we're going to look at a quick review of where we are in this book and how this book has brought us to this point, because uh, the meat of the book is over, and at the end here in in Romans 16, Paul is taking care of some final words. And uh, it still exists in the context of the book, and I think the key to the book of Romans is I've believe uh, very firmly is understanding the context of each part and what exactly is being discussed. The theme for the book of Romans uh, that I've been teaching is the gospel to the world and what it means for me. And, and because uh, if you look at the themes here, Romans 1 through 3, I just wrote them all out for you. Romans 1 through 3, I think I might have had it here. No, I don't have it on the screen. If you'll just follow along on the back of your sheet. We see the introduction, the problem of sin in the first three chapters, Romans 1 through 3. Romans 1, he talks about the gospel going out to the Gentile people. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, the power of God in the the, the salvation of God coming to not just Jews, but Gentiles, not just God's old covenant people, but now a new covenant people. There is a a group of people that is beyond just the Jewish um, ethnic group that is part of God's covenant. We have the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles, the power of the gospel, and the Gentiles' descent into sin and idolatry. He talks about the the wickedness of the Gentile nations, which was no, uh, no surprise to the Jewish people. You see idolatry throughout the ancient world and idolatry on display in the hearts of men that people's hearts uh, spiral from idolatry to immorality and ignorance and all these things. They go to uh, immorality at the end where they are exchanging the truth of God for a lie and they are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And this kind of immorality displays itself and the sin is prevalent. And then he, in chapter 2, talks about what I call here the self-righteous Jewish person, the law keeper, who looks at the pagan people and says these unlawful, these, these, these law-breaking transgressors who are idolaters and immoral people, uh, look at how bad they are. And then he says, but you who, who say these things, do you practice the same things? You, you violate the same law that you uphold. So the self-righteous Jewish person also needs to be saved. And then he encapsulates it all in Romans 3 with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory we cannot reach on our own. Romans 4, 5, and 6 tell us the solution for the sin problem, which is Romans 4, salvation by faith alone to him who works not, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. And then Romans 5 talks about Christ being like the last Adam. He begins by talking about the, how it is possible that salvation by grace through faith saves us, that just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. We have this in Romans 5. Romans 6 talks about us being united with Christ, that we are united with Him. At the end of Romans 5, I mentioned this morning that, that God's grace, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. We cannot out the grace of God. But if that's the case, that does not give us license to sin however much we want. 
And, and there's a twisted way people sometimes think that, oh, if I sin more, God will be glorified more because he'll be able to show more and more grace. He says in Romans 6, that's not correct thinking because you're united with Christ. You have union with Jesus. You're baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into his death. Therefore, as you've been buried with him in the likeness of his death, you will be raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. You will have a, a new way of living because you are united with Jesus. And if this is the case, sometimes we might think to ourselves, well, huh, then if I'm united with Jesus, then I won't struggle with my sin at all. And he says this in Romans 7 and 8, that uh, actually that's not the case uh, at all, because the harsh realities of Christian growth is that you will want to do things that are right, but you won't do them. And the things you want to do, you won't do. And the things you don't want to do, you do. A wretched man that I am, he says, who will, who will save me from this body of death? And uh, he talks about also in Romans 7, the law, the fact, the purpose of the law to expose sin, not to save us. The purpose of the law is not to bring salvation, but condemnation. The law is not a merit system. It is a demerit system. It shows us what we've done wrong, not what we've done right. So the law is the purpose of the law. And then he says in Romans 8, but because we might be tempted to condemn ourselves or be feeling condemned, he says, you are not condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us who gives us power and strength to grow every day. That's Romans 8. One of the most tremendously encouraging chapters in all the Bible. I encourage you to memorize it because it will be an encouragement to you when you are struggling. Romans 9 through 11 deals with the question of, okay, what happens to Israel in the Old Covenant? If the Old Covenant was so good, if God was so good in doing this, then why did Israel reject it? And, and does that just somehow uh, mean that God either made a mistake or that the, the covenant was not a proper? But he says, no, no, God had a sovereign choice of Israel, that the Gentiles were actually predicted from the beginning to come into the kingdom. But salvation is not just a matter of, of being a part of a nation of Israel. It's a personal decision. Romans chapter 10 says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a personal thing. It doesn't matter if you grow up in a Christian home or in a Christian church or at a, in a good, go, go to good schools and be taught the Bible from an early age. You must be saved personally. You must come to Christ yourself. God is not done with Israel, Romans chapter 11. Just because they've rejected him, God is not done with Israel. He has a plan for them. Their rejection is not final. All of that is doctrinal truth, Romans 1 through 11. And then he dives into what it means for me. He says, how does this work itself out? How do you live out the gospel. What does the gospel mean for how we live out the truth? And it is a very profound thing, because the more you think about how the implications of the gospel work themselves out in our lives, the more you see these, all, these things all connecting. Because if we live in a works-based religion, if we're competing with each other for God's favor, if we're doing things to get earned favor with God, then it changes our dynamic. It changes how we treat one another. It changes how we act with one another. It totally changes everything. But since the gospel is grace— by grace you've been saved, we don't have to worry about that. It changes our dynamic. We now love one another. We can care for one another. We're not in competition with each other. He talks about that, the gospel being lived out among believers in Romans chapter 12. Lots of advice there, words, of scripture, instruction on how we are to live among believers. Romans 13, living among outsiders, government, and neighbors, how we're to live with our, uh, with our government. Romans 14, dealing with Christians who will disagree. The question might come up, okay, if we're all spirit-led and spirit-indwelt, we'll never disagree, right? No. You know, Christians are going to disagree. And how do you handle conscience issues? This is not something to disregard or to look down or to judge your brother or to look down upon your brother. You must deal with them as one for whom Christ died. Romans 15, he talks about the hope for the world and the fact that Gentiles are incorporated 
into the church. And as we come to chapter 16, we have the closing chapter of the book, and it's very different from what we've seen so far. In fact, we see a lot of personal greetings from the Apostle Paul and his companions to the church at Rome. Why is it important to read, study, and understand these personal greetings? I, I, I can tell you that in the past when I would study these, uh, uh, when I would read these books, let's say I was reading them for my personal devotions, I would come to a section like this and I would see a bunch of commendations and greetings. And you know what I would do? The same thing you would do. Oh, let's see here. What's the next? It's the same thing you do when you come to the genealogies, you know? It's like, oh, how many pages of genealogies are in First Chronicles? Seven pages of genealogy. You know, you just kind of go through. But don't do that. Because there's a purpose and there's a, there's a reason behind why God le- put this in. I almost said left it in the Word. He, he put it there. There's a, there's a reason for it. It's a, there's a very purposeful thing. And I, I want to just mention a couple or maybe three. First, this emphasizes the authenticity of Paul as a person. And I know you might say, well, duh, that's obvious. He wrote the book of Romans. But you realize there are people who don't believe the Bible who will say that Paul was not an authentic person or who will say that he didn't write certain things. But when you see that, that the, the, personal, the personal nature of these letters and the fact that he's writing to personal people, it really emphasizes it. It makes it difficult for critics who do all they can to discount the authority of Scripture, who do all they can to discount the historicity of Scripture. It makes it more difficult for them to do that when they see such personal, some personal notes here. And I think there are lots of practical applications regarding our dealings with each other in, in church and in church ministry and fellowship in Christ, there's even a verse in here that I'll point out that I think is especially relevant in our current context today. It also includes some last-minute warnings. It's like the P.S. Have you ever written a note and at the very end you say, P.S.? Oh, yeah, I forgot to, to mention this earlier. Let me make sure that you get this point. That's kind of what you could see chapter 16 um, as. So let's look at these greetings. I've divided this chapter into three sections, greetings, warnings, and blessings. Let's look at chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Let's look at greetings. We first have uh, Phoebe who is a servant of the church. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister. Okay, the first person he talks about is a woman by the name of Phoebe. She is a servant in the church of Kentrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. This is a commendation. This is a commendation. She is commended by the Apostle Paul. That is, she is recommended A lot of people think that Phoebe is the bearer, or at least one of the bearers of the letter of Rome. Have you ever thought about how mail was sent in the ancient world? Mail was not sent with a lick of a stamp and dropping it in a blue box. People would carry letters, often to great peril of their own selves and their own health, and they would go by groups and carry letters with them to these churches. And Phoebe was probably one of those, as since she's the first one mentioned, is likely the one carrying or bearing the letter with her. I want you to notice something else about her name. Her name, Phoebe, we see a lot of this is, is frequently used in Greek mythology. So it's very unlikely that she was a Jew. It's very likely that she was a Gentile. Now think about the theme of Romans. Now we've talked about the Jews and the Gentiles being made of one church and how significant it is. The first per- person he mentions is a Greek Gentile who's likely carrying this. She's also noticed the word sister. I'm sorry, she's our sister, uh, same word as brother, just the feminine form of that. She is a believer uh, in Jesus Christ. She's part of the fellowship, even though she is a Gentile. She is a sister. She's included in the fellowship. 
And I think, like I said earlier, this is proof of the thesis of Romans, that God, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, is, is reconciling people to each other and people to God. So there is this union in the church. A couple other things. She's a servant. This is the same word for deacon. Some people have argued that this is a deaconess or a, uh, a, per, a woman serving in the role of a deacon. Uh, this is, that's possible, but it's, it's also likely that this is just the word for servant, the same word that's used throughout the Scripture as the word of someone who serves the church. And a servant in the church is the, one of the highest uh, roles you can play, which is not the case in the general culture. A servant was considered lowly, but in church context, in church culture, a servant is considered uh, someone of great honor. Contrea is an area, or Centrea, I should say, is an area near Corinth, so she was from that area. It's a smaller area right near Corinth. And uh, lastly, it says that, um, let me see here, uh, helper myself, oh, here it is, of the church in Centrea, I don't know exactly how to say that, that town name. This word church, this is actually the first time the word church has appeared in the book of Romans. And it refers to a local assembly. The church is always referring to a local assembly at a specific place. In fact, in the Old Testament, the use of the word ecclesia, which is church in the New Testament, it, when the Bible was translated from Hebrew to Greek, this word was used, the assembly of the people of God, the congregation. It was often used there. So Paul uses this word one more time in or actually several more times in this chapter, and he uses it a lot in his epistles, but this is the first reference we see to the word church. Notice his uh, command to her, receive her in the Lord. Receive her as you would receive any Christian, just as all the saints are received. You are to receive her, assist her, assist her with what she needs. Why? Because she helps people. She helps Paul as well. She's referenced nowhere else in Scripture, but she was a great help to Paul, and he says just receive her as you would receive anyone else. The second group we have, the second couple, is Priscilla and Aquila. He calls them fellow workers, and your blank there is hosts of the church, hosts, H-O-S-T-S, of the church. Notice he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. How would you like to have the church meeting in your house, you know? When you're getting ready to talk about building a building, or we talked about that today, um, next week, everyone just should gather in your living room. Okay? Does that, how does that make you feel? How difficult would that be? It'd be very challenging, wouldn't it? Uh, and it's, people will say that likely uh, Priscilla and Aquila, a couple, were well off. They were, they were very wealthy, and they had the room to host a church in their house. They were a host of the church. They were fellow workers, and it says they risked their own necks for my life. They risked their own lives for, uh, for Paul's. We see them a couple times in the book of Acts, Acts 18. Paul remained a good while. He took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him, so they were with him on one of his journeys in Acts 18.26. He began to speak. This is Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God. More accurately, you may remember that, uh, story. So Aquila and Priscilla are not only good companions, they're also spiritually discerned. They have the spiritual discernment to pull aside a great gifted speaker like Apollos and help him understand the Word of God more carefully. We have another person here, um, Epinatus. Uh, he's described here as the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. He is the beloved, is the blank I have for you, the beloved. Um, he is he's the beloved, loved by Paul. He's the first convert in Asia there in Achaia. 
Um, verse 6, we have Mary. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. We don't know anything else other than she worked very hard and, um, and that she lived there in Rome. These are all people who lived in Rome. In verse 7, Andronicus and Junia are Junius, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who were in Christ, who were in Christ uh, before me. That is, notice a couple things here. They're, they're countrymen. What does that mean? If Paul says they're my countrymen, they're what? They're Jews. Okay, they're Jewish people. My fellow prisoners, they were likely locked up with him at some point. This phrase here is debated. What this means, of note among the apostles, there's a couple ways you can translate that. It can mean that they're outstanding among the apostles. Also, it could mean that they're well known to the apostles. A couple different ways of, of translating that phrase, difficult to exactly translate it. But they were well known is the best way of thinking of that. And, and notice this last phrase. What does that mean? They were in Christ before me. They were saved before Paul was saved. They, they, they've been Christians a long time. They've been following Jesus for a long time, okay? So, um, Adronicus and Junia, perhaps here a, a husband-wife combo, we don't know. Uh, we're, we're very mature in the faith. We have the others here, verses 8 through 16, we'll breeze through these. They're not described in any other way other than really their, their names. Amplius, uh, my beloved, Urbanus, our fellow worker, Stachus, my beloved, Apelles, approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, greet Herodian, my countrymen, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord, and I should get a, a, a medal for saying all those names, and, and uh, I don't think I said them right, but um, that, that is, I, I, these names are difficult. Every time I read this, I, I, I just, and think about, I want you to think for a second, if you were one of these people sitting in Rome, and, and the way that these letters would come in is that people would sit like this, and, and, and someone would stand up and say, I have a letter from the Apostle Paul. Greetings. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church in Rome. And they would read aloud this letter. And it's been re- they've been reading it for a long time. It's a long letter. Maybe for more than an hour they've been sitting, listening. And as he comes to the end, you hear your name read. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be neat to hear Paul say, hey, you, I remember you. I remember you too, and I remember you, and how, how that would have just filled you with joy. I, I, just, I was thinking about that as I was studying this. I thought how fun it would have been to be one of these. Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord, my theory is that those two are twins. That's just a total theory, completely not based in reality or the Scripture. I just, that sounds like something a parent would do. They named their kids Tryphena and Tryphosa. Like, that just doesn't that sound like completely uh, irrelevant. But uh, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. We might have a Rufus. Uh, he might be referenced in Mark. Um, during the crucifixion scene, they compelled a certain Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country to passing by to bear his cross. It's possible that Rufus' dad was Simon the Cyrenian, who bared the cross of Christ. It's possible. We don't know for certain, but that's uh, uh, Rufus and several scholars I read uh, pointed that, that that was a possibility. Chosen of the Lord, his mother and mine. Greet, I see I got cocky, now I can't say these names. Uh, Asyncritus, uh, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And I feel bad for Nereus' sister who Paul did not remember her name, so he just called her 
his sister and Olympus and all the saints who were there. It was just a smattering of people's names. And, uh, and I, I can't help but feel a little bit of sympathy for Paul trying to remember everyone's names as he's, um, as he's writing this list and, and referring to all these wonderful people who he served with. I'll try to go quickly because I know we're running uh, out of time here. He goes into verse 16. He says this, greet one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ greet you. There's something here that's essential, and I don't want to just fly by this. There is an essential, direct, personal connection between people in the church. The holy kiss is a personal relationship, personal connection between people. There is, a, there is something about being with the Christians, and in, in, our, in our Baptist context, it's, it's shaking hands, it's greeting one another. We don't really do the kiss thing, but we do greet one another, we do greet one another, and that's important. And we see one another, and we touch one another. And I don't want to, but when we were in the whole COVID lockdown thing, I brought this up several times with our staff, and I brought this up with other friends, and I said, this is not something to just be, oh, we can't, you can't do church long distance and, and through a screen, because there is, there is an essential nature to the contact between people. And Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So often we say, oh, you know, just keep reading. There's an essential nature to that. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think you know it. When you see people face-to-face, when you shake their hand, when you are with them, there's an essential nature to being close to people. Lastly, I want to point out, or uh, next, I want to point out warnings. Warnings there in verse 17. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and do what? Avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. I'm going to stop here because I actually have a lot to say about this passage, and I do want to give it its due, and we're already five minutes over um, our time tonight. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to put a pause on this, and if you would just put that piece of paper in your Bible, and I would like to come back to this next time uh, we have an opportunity to be together, because this passage, this, this responsibility we have is very essential. As Paul is closing out his letter, just hang with me for one second before I let you go. As Paul is closing his letter here, he says this. He says, I am concerned about the danger that awaits you and your church. There are people who speak bad things. There are people who speak bad doctrines and there are people who will lead astray, people who will misdirect, and these people are not doing it for the right reasons. They are not in ministry, and they're not teaching for the proper reasons. They are feeding their own flesh and their own belly. This is something that reappears several times in Paul's ministry, something that I am very, I, I find is a huge emphasis for Paul's teaching, so much so that as he's greeting the churches, it's almost like he is thinking about these people, and he stops and he says, you, you've got to hear me. I've got to warn you one more time because I love you so much. I, I, as he's thinking through these people, he might even say someone's name and think, oh, they're, they're, they're going to be easily deceived if I don't warn them. They've got to be warned. People are not always looking out for your best interest. You've got to know the Scriptures. You've got to love the Lord, and you've got to be careful what you listen to and who you listen to. And I want to spend, a lot of, I want to spend more time looking at this in the warnings that he gives here at the end of this book of Romans. So we're going to postpone this until next time. But um, uh, we can rejoice that we have fellowship in, among the believers, fellowship with the saints, 
and we have wonderful relationships here uh, with one another. Why don't you stand with me? We'll close in prayer. Thank you so much for being here tonight. If you have any questions about what we talked about with the um, Property Development Committee, you can talk to me, talk to Charles, talk to any of the Property Development Committee members. We are appreciative of your being here, and uh, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to worship God today. I hope it's been a refreshing day in the Lord. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, we love you. We thank you for the fellowship we have with one another, for the encouragement we have of being with one another and encouraging each other and stirring up one another to love and to good works. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and direction as we look forward to what you would have us do. God, let us be faithful with what you've given us uh, in the little things and in the big. These are big decisions that lay ahead of us, God. I pray that you would guide us and direct us. And I pray for our church that we would continue to have an evangelistic heart for people around us to reach those who don't yet know you, to have a heart for those who don't have a church home, for those who need uh, to be discipled and equipped for the work of the ministry. Father, may we have love in our hearts for them. And let us not be lazy or complacent in the work in which you've called us to do. Bless now our evening. Thank you for your love for us.